Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be among you this morning here in Bangor Paris. Thanks for letting a Presbyterian come among you. And uh, I'm really thankful for the invitation uh, to share with you this morning. Uh, last year, I was out in a forest, and I can remember coming across a section of that forest where the trees had just been completely removed and uh, deliberately removed. And um, what was once a dense forest was now just a wide open, barren, isolated, exposed place with nothing else there. But what caught my attention most was that right next to this particular section was another section of trees, and the front row of those trees, or of that section of the forest, all of the trees in the front row had fallen down as well. But this time it seemed like they'd fallen down just all by themselves. So a section of trees that had been deliberately removed and then another section where the front row of the trees had fallen down seemingly all by themselves. And as I continued on my journey that day, I began to wonder to myself, was that just a coincidence? Was it just a coincidence that trees that had stood for, I'm sure, uh, lots and lots of years had fallen down almost at exactly the same time as other trees beside them had been deliberately removed? Or was it that those trees had been strengthened and supported by the other trees around them? They'd received nutrients from the roots or the soil. They'd received protection from the wind from the other branches. But whenever they were removed, suddenly they found themselves exposed and isolated, exposed to the elements with little protection. They weren't strong enough to cope with the isolation of tough conditions. And for me, that became almost like a little mini parable for me, a metaphor for perhaps the, the times that we have been living through, where in the past couple of years, many of the things that we have relied on in our faith, perhaps for, uh, most, of our, uh, for most of our lives, were stripped away. A time of exposure where maybe some have drifted to the fringes of fellowship, or some people have floundered in their faith when they were isolated like never before. And like those fallen trees, maybe there are some who no longer walk with Jesus like they once did. Maybe they were fine in the safety of, of the Christian bubble, but they were less prepared for environments where their faith, were were, uh, where their faith was challenged. Maybe they were okay on the mountaintops, but they struggled in the valley. And maybe for some of you here this morning, that might be your story, your reality, your struggle. Maybe there's been a weakening, a struggle in the isolation of the moment. Um, a recent Barna survey, Barna are a, a research organization based in the, in the USA, uh, and they, uh, a, a recent Barna survey revealed that the percentage of young adults who drop out of the church in the USA has now increased to 64%. So almost two-thirds of those who grew up in the church have withdrawn from church involvement as an adult. And obviously those statistics are for, U, for the US, but if I'm honest, as I look around at our current context here, in Ireland or Northern Ireland, I don't see much that convinces me that we don't have a similar issue. In many ways, this image of the fallen trees rings true, whether it's due to the current challenges that we've been facing or maybe even due to the, um, to the changing culture around us. I believe that we need deeper roots 
of discipleship in our faith and in our lives. But Barna's research that they conducted, it wasn't all bad news, okay? So um, they identified a subsection of Christians whose faith hadn't wilted under cultural pressure and, and who hadn't been destroyed through testing or trial, but actually their faith had actually flourished in difficulty and in darkness. And they suggested that this group represented 10% of Christians, and they gave them the term resilient disciples. Resilient disciples, they described as, were Christians who attended church regularly and engaged in more than just attending a worship service. They trusted in the authority of the Bible. They were committed to Jesus personally and affirmed He was crucified, uh, crucified and, and rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. And they expressed some kind of desire to transform society around them as an outcome of their faith. I wonder as you look at those four things today, if maybe that describes you and who you are and what you believe and how you carry your faith. You see, resilience is described as the ability to recover or adjust, sorry, the, the ability to adjust to or recover readily from adversity. And I think we've all learned a little bit about resilience in the past couple of years, haven't we? We've learned or we've had to learn how to adapt and adjust and in the circumstances around us, maybe there's needed to be a resilience in continually adjusting to the situation you find yourself in. Maybe even the fact that you're here today tells me that there's some kind of resilience in you, resilience that perseveres that understands it might not be easy, but I'll learn to adapt and I'll adjust and I'll find a way. It's something we need in life. And the, and the whole theme of resilience has risen to the surface. We think of things like mental health and the need for resilience in it. That's been a really helpful conversation. And perhaps even as I watched the Olympics in the summer, a lot of athletes talked about the need for resilience and, and learning to cope with a, a delayed Olympics and to keep training. It's something we need in life, and it's also something we need in faith. And maybe that's why the writer to the Hebrews said that we needed to run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. There's almost recognition in those words that it's not going to be easy. The faith, life, it's going to be challenging, and, and resilience or perseverance is going to be needed. And so over the past couple of years, well, the key question that I've been asking isn't just how resilient disciples defined, but how are they formed? How are they shaped? And last year, I wrote and released a book that aimed to answer that question, I called it Deep Roots of Resilient Disciples, this idea that Actually, we needed to invest in what was below the surface of our faith and not just the, th the bits and of our life that everyone else sees. It recognized the need that we needed resilient disciple discipleship to continue uh, and to persevere and to live a life of long-haul faith. And in that book, I explored 11 principles and practices that I believed helped to form a life of lasting faith. And I'm going to take you through all 11 this morning. No, I'm not. I'm only joking. This morning, I see the panic. Uh, is this how these Presbyterians rule? I thought there was just three points. But no, this morning, I just want to think about one aspect of this life and faith. And actually, it was the aspect that Nigel had asked me to really particularly focus on um, this morning. And that's the need for Christian community. 
That's the need for other people and to be committed to a life, to, to, uh, sorry, to be committed to the local church and to be committed to the, uh, to the community of Christians that we belong to in a way that helps us to develop resilience, that enables us to develop strength and support for our lives. Already this morning, we've had the words of Ephesians 4 read for us this morning. And in those words, Paul gives a brilliant blueprint for what the church is and what the church could be and how we are to relate to it. And it was read really well for us earlier, so I won't read it at all out again, but just a few verses just to remind us uh, from Ephesians 4. Paul says to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He says there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Why? to equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. How do we reach maturity in faith? How, how, how could we grow spiritually to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ? Well, actually, Paul tells us here in Ephesians chapter 4, he says that Jesus gave different functions of leadership to the church so that the people of God would be equipped to serve him. As everyone then serves, the body of Christ is going to be built up and we will grow in unity, in knowledge of Jesus, and in maturity. Did you catch it? The church is critical, Paul says, to growing and spiritual maturity. We can't grow without the church. Christianity is not a solo sport. I, I, my sport is running, and I, I love to run, run several times a week, and I'm part of a, a local running club. And, and people often assume about running, because you can kind of do it whenever you want, that it's a solo sport. But I've actually found the kind of weird thing that I run further and I run faster whenever I run with other people. <laughs> now, I don't really know why that is. It might be because I'm full of pride and I don't want to get left behind <laughs> by the people around me. And so I, I want to keep up and I want to keep in step with the people I'm running with. And I think I'm not going to get left behind. Or maybe it's that the time just passes by a little bit quicker whenever I'm chatting with other people. Maybe it's whenever I'm, with, whenever I'm on my own, I'm tempted to, you know, take a shortcut or turn around a little bit sooner. I don't know, but whatever it is, running with other people helps me to run further and run faster. And I believe that it's exactly the same when it comes to following Jesus. That whenever we're surrounded by others, whenever we're in community, with others, whenever we're connected to the life of the local church in a meaningful way, that it helps us to go further and to go faster. It helps us to run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Christianity is not a solo sport. It's not just turn up on Sunday and then go home again back to your 
life for the other 167 hours. It's we need each other to help us and support us. It's that our central moments where we connect together are of vital importance to equip us to live for Jesus in our everyday lives and that we're called to be part of a community that goes beyond those times as well. So how can we grow in Christian community in a way that shapes our resilience and our faith? I just want to offer three phrases this morning uh, to help us consider Paul's words to the Ephesians. You're not going to remember everything I say, but maybe these phrases might help you just to give little hooks to hang this on and for you to lean into in the week ahead. First of all, I want to point out that the church is to be unified but not uniform. It's unified, but it's not uniform. Paul says that there is one body and one spirit. In fact, he goes on a bit of a rant with the word one, and he uses the word one seven times within three short verses. He's saying oneness is really important. There's one body and one spirit and one baptism and one hope and one church. And and it was to emphasize to an early church who were comprising of Jewish and Gentile backgrounds and believers. This, to this diversity of ethnicities and nationalities and backgrounds and experiences, that through the Spirit they could be one, even in their diversity, they could find unity. Uh, don't tell them if you ever bump into them, but I sometimes look around the church that I attend on Sunday mornings and I smile to myself. And the reason I smile to myself is because I sometimes look around and I think to myself, you know, it's not natural that we would be friends. I'm part of a lead a small group or a home group um, that, that, that meets um, as well from our church. And I sometimes look around that room and I think, how on earth is it that we are together like this? We shouldn't be friends. We're from different backgrounds and different experiences and different generations with different interests and I'm sure different political opinions and beliefs and, and with different personalities and, and gifts and some of them don't even like sport and I don't really know how to relate to people who don't like sport and uh, I'm only joking. But, but you know, some, we're, we're just so different and we have different interests and we don't think the same or dress the same or worship the same and yet here we are sharing in unity together. I actually think it's an amazing picture of the grace of Jesus Christ, of how he brings people from different backgrounds and allegiances together to be unified. We're not uniform. We're not even meant to be uniform. We're not called to be uniform. We're not called to be like each other. We are called to love one another. If you're in Christ, then you're united together. And that's what connects us together. That's what brings us together and makes us family. Not our preferences, but about the purpose that we have and have been given. Matt Chandler writes this. He says, what connects believers is the reality that we were all very messed up people, broken before a holy God, yet rescued and given new life in Christ. What, what connects us together The fact that we are all broken before Jesus, that's what we have in common. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's one name that we come under, and then as we come under that name, it brings us into unity together with each other. 
It means no one here is greater than another. No one's work more important. We're called to unity. And for me, nowhere is this model better than in the early church. These early churches that were grappling with diversity, but learning how to, be, uh, how to live in unity. In Philippi, for example, in Acts 16, we discover that in Philippi, the church there was home to Lydia, who was an affluent businesswoman. She'd had corporate success, and she'd actually given it up. There was also a slave girl who had had a demon just cast out of her. Imagine her testimony in a small group. And then there was a prison guard who'd just been recently been prevented from taking his own life. All in the same church. Can you imagine them in the same immersed Bible study group? You know, they wouldn't have had the same backgrounds. They wouldn't have had the same bank balances. They wouldn't have listened to the same music or eaten in the same cafes. And yet they were around the one table of the Lord as His invited guests. We are not called to be uniform, but we are called to be unified. And committing to community means seeing one another through the eyes of Christ. Jesus said, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples. What was he talking about? What's the this? Was it by their impressive buildings? Everyone would know. Their deeply theological sermons? Everyone would know they're his disciples by their amazing programs in the church? No, by how they loved one another. The world will know by how we love one another. Christian unity doesn't lie in one kind of method or style of worship. It's in one name. It's found in one name. We are not uniform, but we are called to be unified. Maybe that's a challenge for us or a reminder today. But Paul also wants us to celebrate the body of Christ, and not spend our lives complaining about it, to live a life of celebration towards the church and not complaint. See, Paul encourages the believers to make every effort to maintain unity with one another. He says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And there's almost a clue in Paul's words here. You see, it's obvious from Paul's words that it wasn't natural that they would dwell in perfect harmony together. And so it would require effort. It's going to take effort, Paul says, um, to, to be in community together. How do you speak? How do you speak about one another in the church? How do you speak about someone who's frustrated you? How do you speak about leaders in the church? I wonder if we can truly say we're making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit if our posture is one of complaint rather than celebration. If we spend our lives complaining about the body of Christ, it's not making every effort. If we use our mouths to gossip about others in the church, it's not making every effort. And if we don't speak well of the body of Christ, then how do we expect others out there to value it? We are part of an incredible, incredible gift. The church is an amazing gift given to us by God to help to strengthen and support us in our lives. It's an amazing expression uh, um, of His love. And, you know, it's hard to just say that we love Jesus, but we're not so sure about His church because the church is Jesus' bride. It's the bride of Christ, and we're called to love and to value it and to celebrate it. You know, we can't just cherish Jesus and just complain about His bride. We're called 
to be part of it, and we're called to love it and embrace it. And of course, please don't get me wrong, we might have frustrations with the church. There are flaws in the church, of course. We might do things differently. And at times in history and in parts of the world, at times the church um, have got things wrong and have not done things and been the way, uh, lived um, or uh, born the image of Christ the way it should but we are called to cherish and to love and to value the church. As I read the New Testament, I still haven't found a different way to be a follower of Christ. And as our rhythms and our habits have been so impacted and affected over the past couple of years, as our lives have known disruption and upheaval, perhaps for some of us like never before, will church continue to be a central rhythm in our life? Will we not just celebrate it, but cherish it and make it a central habit and rhythm of our life? Psalm 100 verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. We have something to celebrate in the church. And I just don't want to celebrate Jesus on Sundays and grumble about his bride on Mondays. We're called to celebrate it. In the words of Francis Chan, he says, Let's make sure we're not guilty of belittling God's church in any way. It's not a social club. It's not a building, and it's not an option. The church is life and death. The church is God's strategy for reaching our world. What we do inside the church matters. And maybe for you, it's been easy to have lost sight of the brilliance and the beauty of the church. Maybe spiritual isolation has become a norm, and you need reminded of those words in Hebrews 10 to consider how you may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, to not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but to encourage one another and all the more as you say the, see the day approaching. Maybe it feels like those words are even more important post-COVID, you know, or perhaps we're tempted to treat discipleship as a download or treat church, you know, from the safety of our sofas. <clears throat> But Paul says, make every effort. Make every effort. Or as, or as the phrases of this church mission statement say, give your all in worship. Join the family and fellowship. Keep on growing in maturity. So let's choose a posture of celebration, not complaint. And finally this morning, I'd love, this, love us to think about how Paul calls us and invites us to be participants in his kingdom and not just passengers in the church participants, not passengers. You see that final little section that we read from verses 11 to 13 in Ephesians 4, Paul is showing there that, that we all have a part to play, that all God's people have a part to play in the church. How do we know that? Listen to these words. Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? To equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. You see, Paul is saying that all of the people of God have works of service to do. It's not just a few people's job to do all the ministry and everyone else kind of watch on from the sidelines. You see, maybe that's how often we have view, viewed ministry in the church. We kind of take on this kind of sporting mindset or spectator mindset in the church, you know, where it's the job of the experts on the field of play to entertain us and we enjoy it from the sidelines. They participate and we spectate. They contribute and we consume. They perspire and we get inspired. 
maybe even they do the ministry and we critique it and from the sidelines. And if you're like me watching sport, make all the comments about how we could do it better, of course, as well. But the church isn't meant to be just a few people doing everything with lots of spectators on the sidelines. It's actually called to be the opposite. The job of the leaders of the church is not to do all the ministry, but actually to equip everyone for ministry. It's not just for the missionaries or the ministers or the keen beings or the confident ones. The work of ministry is for all of us. The church involves every saint serving, and the good news is that everyone gets to play. Everyone gets to play. No matter who you are, no matter your background or baggage or experience or gifts or eloquence, you are invited to participate in the, in the ministry of the church. You see, many churches have a sign on the road of where they gather. They didn't look too closely at yours as it drove in, but usually at the spl- um, today, but it usually just describes some key information about where they gather or when they gather or contact information. But I once heard of a church, an Anglican church actually, that had a sign outside their church building that read this, minister, all members, all members. And I loved that because the sign was declaring that the job of ministry wasn't just for those who stood at the front or took a lead, but it was for the responsibility of everyone. Now, of course, some people in the church are called to lead. We need leaders, and Paul emphasizes that. There's different functions of leadership, different roles, and different gifts of leadership. We need that. But who's the minister of this church? (laughs) Paul's encouraging us to think about the ministry of the church being for all of us. Now, don't panic, okay? You're not going to stand up to preach next Sunday, probably. You're probably not going to move into the manse or, or whatever. But you are called to participate in the mission, ministry and the mission of God. I talk about ministry of the pew, not ministry of the few. So what would ministry of the pew look like? I think maybe it might mean walking across the aisle to say hello to someone who you don't know very well. It might be stopping in the car park with someone to ask them how you could pray for them this week, maybe even doing it. It might mean singing out really loudly to encourage someone who's doubting the truth of the words nearby you. It might mean using your gifts to serve in an area of need. It might mean dropping around a food parcel to someone who needs it. It might mean encouraging someone who has served really well, upping your giving or just smiling more. (laughs) Ministry of the few, not just of the few, because the real work of the church isn't just what happens in the platform. It's the honest conversation in a small group. It's the invitation of a neighbor to church. It's the welcoming of a child to crash. It's the laser-sharp prayer being offered to someone in need. The real work of the church is done by those who silently and selflessly serve one another. If you're one of God's people, then you've works of service to do. The church isn't just for a few superstars to lead, but for the whole family to contribute. It's, it's about serving, not spectating. And maybe for some of us today, the, the good news of this message is of the support and the strength that God wants to provide to you in your faith through the lives of other believers and through the witness of the local church. 
Maybe today he's reminding you of the beauty and the brilliance of being connected to the body of Christ. And maybe for you in times of isolation or difficulty or challenge or crisis, maybe for you the good news today is to be reminded of the beauty and the brilliance of the local church. And for you to thank God for that and to commit your life to it. Or maybe for you today there's a challenge. And the challenge is for you to be that support and strength to others. For you to not just be a passenger, but for you to participate in the mission of God. And for you to celebrate what the church is by committing your life to it. Let me return as I finish to tree roots. And to leave with you the picture of giant American redwood trees. Some of the world's oldest and tallest trees, over 100 feet in height, many of them. They're known for their sturdiness and strength. But what's significant about the roots of these trees is that rather than going down straight into the ground, they actually spread out horizontally beneath the surface, sometimes up to, up to 100 feet in length, but 100 feet or at least 50 feet either side stretching away from the base of the tree. And as they extend out horizontally, they begin to wrap around and kind of fuse around the roots of the other trees alongside them, almost like linking arms in a chain. And it's through the roots linking together that they actually find the sturdiness and strength for them to survive above the surface. What an incredible picture. Maybe for you, recent times have shown you that you need the community of God's people to strengthen and support you. Maybe you see afresh the need to commit and to connect to the church to prepare you for the tough environments that you will face. The church is a gift given to us by God. It's his plan A for the world. And he allows it and gives it to us so that we can intertwine our lives with other believers to strengthen and support us. And in the, lives of, sorry, in the words of Paul, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We're called to be unified, not uniform. We're called to have a posture of celebration, not complaint towards the body of Christ. And we're called to be participants, not passengers in the church. Maybe as I finish today, just before I pray, why don't you just take a moment, maybe reflect on those three phrases, maybe for you to consider and reflect on what maybe the Holy Spirit might be putting his finger on in your life. Maybe what's the challenge for you to step into and live into in the week and in the month and even the year ahead. Why don't you reflect on that in a moment and then we'll pray. Father, we thank you for what you have provided for us through the lives of the other believers around us. We thank you for the beauty and the brilliance of your church. And we recognize the flaws at times, but we choose to step into um, 
commitment and belonging to the local church. We pray that you would help us to share our lives with one another, to not live as isolated islands, but to rely on one another, to help one another, to support one another, and to learn and to glean from the wisdom and experience and help and support of each other. I pray you'd help us to be unified even in our diversity. I pray you'd help us to celebrate um, what we've been given by you through the church. And we help, pray that you would help each of us to play our part, to be contributors and not consumers, to be passengers and not participants. Would you help us, God, with, with the help of your Spirit, to be the body of Christ, your body here on earth, that reflects you to each other and to the world around us? Would we find our strength in your people and in your church in these days? For it's in Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.